Hello, this is the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 3, Episode 12, and this is an encore presentation of a previous episode. We are talking again to Lisanna Wallace, who has written the Natural Witches Cookbook. This is part of Halloween week, and I'm looking forward to having you hear this interview again. It was one of my favorite it was one of my favorite um, interviews, and I really always enjoy talking with Lisanna. I hope to have her on the show again. So here we go back to our conversation with Lasana Wallace with the Natural Witches Cookbook. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 1, Episode 10. Today, I welcome author Lisana Wallets. Lisana Wallets grew up in New York, attending Bernard College of Columbia University before moving to Paris. She was born with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, a connective tissue disorder that causes dysfunction throughout the body. When her symptoms suddenly worsened, she delved deeper into her passion for cooking as a way to help heal herself. She spent years experimenting with her diet, using food, plant, and mushroom medicine as a way to regain control over her life. Her first cookbook, The Natural Witches Cookbook, has also been published in French and German. Her book is the accumulation of the medicinal knowledge she acquired during her health journey and a sublimation of her suffering to help others. Lucina lives in Paris with her longtime boyfriend and splits the rest of her time between Normandy, New York, and Martha's Vineyard. I had a really good time talking to Lasana, and I really hope that you enjoyed the interview as well and get a chance to take a look at her wonderful cookbook. Welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian podcast. My name is Dean Jones, and today I'm interviewing Lisana Wallace, whose book, The Natural Witch's Cookbook, 100 Magical Healing Recipes and Herbal Remedies to Nourish Body, Mind, and Spirit, is out by Simon & Schuster. I recommend it highly. Um, Lisana, welcome to the uh, podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to see what kind of magical things we're going to talk about. Yes. Um, where are we talking from? Are you in um, Europe or are you in America? Uh, I'm in, uh, I'm not in Europe right now. I was supposed to be. I normally I live in Paris, but because of the pandemic, I've been a bit stuck out here and I'm in, I'm on Martha's Vineyard right now, which is a little island off the coast of Cape Cod. Lots of trees and nature and it's beautiful. Oh, very nice. Is it, is it um, warm back there? Or is it a, are you getting a summer? Yeah, it's, uh, it's getting hotter everywhere. And uh, here it's, we're having heat wave after heat wave. Uh, it's been, it's been, <laughs> it's everywhere. It's been getting much, much hotter. It's concerning, but it's beautiful and it's, feels like real summer. Yeah. I um, just wanted to um, say to start off with that I really love the Natural Witches Cookbook. Um, it is a treat from cover to cover. It's so beautiful and it's so well crafted. Um, but I, I, I looked at all the cook, the recipes, and even though I thought, wow, any of these recipes would be completely in place in any gourmet magazine across the country or abroad, they're all just really beautiful. It's not just a simple cookbook, is it? Can you tell me about um, what was your concept for it? 
Thank you. First of all, thank you so much for all those wonderfully kind words uh, you just said about my my cookbook. It's yeah, it's not it's not a typical cookbook. It uh, it's a spellbook of sorts, a spellbook of healing recipes. And when I say spellbook, I don't mean the bippity boppity boo kind of Disney uh, manifestations of magic. I mean more of the naturopathic phytotherapy, using nature and its elements as a way to heal ourselves and help heal others. So it's it's structured, it's presented like a spell book, which is already different, but the recipes aren't typical recipes. They're not just things that we can make for dinner or breakfast or lunch or dinner. They were actually very carefully crafted using ingredients that all work in synergy with each other to support different systems in the body. So for example, there's recipes for immunity, for mood balance, for fertility balance, for giving energy or sleep potions. And what I intended to do was not just target different systems and teach people how they can use food and plants as a way to target sore throats or illnesses or anything that um, that we might deal with, but it's it was also to teach people the healing benefits behind these ingredients so that when you read the cookbook, you're also learning about the different ingredients as you go along. And I hope that at the end, people will look at sweet potatoes or onions in a completely different way, seeing color codes of antioxidants and thinking of, oh, this is a food that really works to balance hormones by using fiber to flush out of the system. And it just gives you a sort of intricate understanding of nutrition. and that's magic for me, taking control of our, our health through recipes. Now, I, I wanted to point out something that I really loved about the cookbook, which was that it's divided into the elements. You have earth recipes, air, water, fire, sweet potion, sweet, sorry, sweets and potions. So tell me about how you decided to divide the cookbook into different quadrants. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, um, I wanted to also give people not just a micro look at micronutrients, but also a macro look at different food groups and sort of the nutritional um, valuations that those individual groups have. So the elements of earth, air, fire, and water are sort of the foundation of our planet and our earth and our bodies and the necessities of all plants and creatures out there. We need water, we need air, we need fire, the sun, and we need the earth to give us our nutrients. And that sort of paradigm of those four categories flow through everything. You see it in Chinese medicine, you see it in Ayurveda from India, uh, everywhere. And I wanted to look at it from a nutritional perspective. So for me, different food groups fit in different categories. The vegetables and the fruits fit into the earth category. They come from the earth. The water element is the creatures of the sea, seafood. Poultry was element of the air and then red meats were fire. And in the book, I, I don't just explain how different nutritive elements group together. So for example, you start to see that the plants, the fruits, the vegetables, that's where you have the antioxidants and the poultry is where you have the B vitamins for energy and creation of blood cells and brain function. And the red meats is the iron vitality and force. And in the seafood, you see the trace elements, omegas that come also from algae. And it was a way to sort of teach 
the nutritive elements, but also at the same time step back from it and also realize that the earth element is the most important one. The majority of our vitamins and minerals come from plants and that there are people who can live perfectly healthy diets, some vegan and plant-based, and there's other people who need some meat. And I also explain how to try to do that more sustainably and how to target local meats and fishes and types of seafood that are better for the environment. And I mean, it's a small step in that direction of how to eat and live more sustainably, but I was hoping that the elements could just help us understand from a broader scale. So there's the macro and the micro inside of both of those things. When were you inspired to write the cookbook and what was your um, kind of uh, rush of inspiration to, to write it? <laughs> it was a long road. I, I always actually used to say I would never do food as a career, <laughs> which is funny how everything in my life I said I wouldn't do turned out exactly like that and I couldn't be happier about it. But I originally, um, I originally worked in fashion and art. I did the whole Vogue magazines in New York and Paris and worked at Marie Claire a little bit and various places like that and then entered into the art world. And then my health issues, uh, I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, connective tissue disorder, that impacts the entire body. Connective tissues everywhere. And when your connective tissue is unstable, it means that everything malfunctions. And I always had this, but it got worse um, six or seven years ago, dramatically worse out of nowhere. And I had to figure out how to adapt my life. I couldn't go out for walks. I couldn't go to the grocery store normally. I was in bed from pain. I couldn't eat food for periods. It was just symptoms flaring up to the point that I was just completely uh, disabled and couldn't go work in an office. So I had to figure out how to adapt my life. And food, this thing that I always did on the side, I, I mean, I, I done private chefing work. I've done, I've taken classes. It's something that I always kept really close to my heart. Everyone would always say, you should open a restaurant. You should do this. And I said, nope, I just do this for friends and family. Cause I didn't want to pervert it, I think, by the stress of a career. And then I suddenly realized that I, I had no choice but to figure out how to keep going and cooking was something that I loved and I would always do, I would, even no matter what my health was, I needed it as a way to express and bring people together. So I figured out, okay, I guess I'm going to pursue this also as a career. It's something I can do from home, from bed. And when you struggle with health issues, there's a huge amount of sort of self-emphasis, ecocentricity, um, what can I eat? Can I do this? I, I, I constantly research going inward towards me and it was suffocating me. Uh, all this inward focus on myself and already you become, you feel like you're a burden for other people. So before I decided to write the book, I used healing and food, everything, all the research I was doing for myself, I used it as a way to invert it and sublimate it and turn it into something for other people. And the best way to do that was a cookbook. And it started with a little blog and writing recipes. And then it started to blossom and develop. And I, it actually, originally I wrote it in French, <laughs> not English originally. And then it was published later into English. Um, so it was really, it was really the product of 
health suffering and having to turn something horrible into something good and help people out of one's own suffering. Um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a um, connective tissue disorder that I think I was, I've read a little bit about it to prepare myself for this interview. And I was surprised to find a lot of people don't even know they have it and are mis being misdiagnosed. Can you tell us a little bit about it and yeah. how it's inspired you to turn to food for healing? I'm so happy that you described, started out by describing it as something that people don't realize they have and that is misdiagnosed because that's one of the most important things I think for people to take away about this condition is that it is very difficult to diagnose because it impacts the whole body and doctors tend to be specialists. So if you have digestive issues and you see a gastroenterologist, they're going to focus on your gut. And, but if you have headaches and they'll send you another specialist, and then you start to think you're a crazy person. And as this condition very often affects women uh, more than men, just due to hormones and all that that impacts, it, it really <laughs> cultivates this crazy woman myth of, oh, your health issues are in your head and so forth. So there's a lot of pain behind lack of diagnosis for this condition. And a lot of people don't know they have it because since it's everywhere in your body and it's always, you're, you're born with it. And it's, since the condition very often impacts people from since they were very young, it can cause, it can be very difficult for people to even know that the symptoms that they're having are not normal. That was the case with myself. And when it comes to EDS, as people like to call it, uh, there isn't a treatment. It's management of symptoms and management of whatever pops up. So it's very much a condition where one day you'll wake up and you'll have migraines for a week. And the next day you wake up and you can't keep any food down or it's all happening at once. And there's not, medication is difficult. And uh, I don't react well to pharmaceuticals. There are some that work great for me, but the most I do not react well to. And very often doctors were in front of me just shaking their head and saying, we don't have any other ideas left on how to treat issues. So I was having severe allergic reactions, anaphylactic type uh, attacks every day just for my own circadian rhythms because I was in a triggered flare. And my doctors didn't know what to do anymore because I was not reacting to, uh, to meds. So I started to integrate immunoregulating plants and mushrooms into my diet. I started to cut out histamines for a period. I experimented with my diet. And I found that by playing with diet, what we put in our bodies, which is incredibly triggering or incredibly healing because there's such a connection of inflammation and our, honestly, our guts are just destroyed by modern life and modern food as well. And there's just such a powerful access route to the whole body, to the liver, to the kidneys, to uh, the circulatory system, through the food, through the stomach, and plants as well. And it became this incredible sort of tableau of experimentation. And I started to realize that like food, it, it takes time but food and plants integrated into recipes every day can have an unbelievably powerful impact on our health and way to access and control our symptoms. It sounds, <clears throat> it sounds like you've had to really do a lot of research on this on your own. Do you think there's a failure in Western medicine to diagnose people accurately, specifically women? Yes, uh, there's 
there's a failure to diagnose because I, I truly believe that med school is too much taught. I've never gone to med school, but from what I see as a patient from doctors, it's too much taught in segments. Like this is this system, this is this system. It needs to be studied in my opinion, like a cobweb, understanding how everything interacts and how if there's something wrong with one organ, it might not be showing it. It might be manifesting through something else. I wish that they integrated nutritive medicine more into med school, that it wasn't just an elective, that it was a requirement. I wish that doctors would ask people, what are you eating <laughs> first? How, how is your stomach handling those kinds of questions, the kind of questions that alternative um, doctors study. And I wish that that naturopathy, traditional medicines were also integrated into it more. I think it can just give a richer view of it. I believe that is a major upset of diagnosis, diagnostics. And also specifically with EDS and women, uh, it just shows the sexism that exists within the medical fields. I can only imagine the racism as well and all kinds of prejudices that exist. But as a woman, I have definitely been put into the, it's, you're crazy, it's in your head, or doctors being confronted with something they didn't understand and this blaming of the patient for it. And I think it's a huge problem. The EDS is so hard to diagnose. I mean, women are on average diagnosed, I think 14 to 16 years after severe onset of symptoms. Oh my God. And men who make up a tiny portion of EDS patients, it doesn't mean that there aren't men who suffer from it, but just they have different hormones and it manifests differently. It's not as severe. Men, yeah. even though there's a tiny percentage of them, they're diagnosed on average only four years after the onset of symptoms. So that shows that something that's, it's, it's crazy, that, that says it all. So there's a lot of work to be done. I mean, I, I've known so many women in my life that were misdiagnosed and found out years after suffering from things. You know, at some point, the doctors get curious as to why they're not getting better, which is many years after the fact. And then suddenly they, oh, we were wrong, you know, but it's 20 years of suffering in the process. I don't understand why things like you're saying, like nutrition aren't taken into account when so many people are, are showing that this is definitely the case. It does have an impact on us. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're moving in a good direction. I think it's also being pushed by the public. I think there's been such, especially in America, a uh, rejection and fear also of what's going into our food. We don't, we don't, we can't trust the, the products in, in Europe, there's thousands of chemicals that are outlawed that are used everywhere in America. And that distrust has generated this interest in people to move towards healthier things and pushing companies and bigger companies to start using better ingredients. And I think, I think people have a lot of power in that. I'm old enough that I've grown up with um, a lot of different health movements, and I've seen a lot of cookbooks that deal with healthier food, but um, I, I grew up eating a lot of food that were not very yummy, <laughs> that were supposed to be good for you, but your cookbook definitely, I mean, like I said, it, it all looks like gourmet stuff like you'd get at a fancy restaurant. Uh, it's very nice food. Um, the presentation is always really wonderful and beautiful colors, um, and there's just really um, unique and clever usages uh, of different vegetables and fruits. Like I really was inspired by your usages of beets and persimmons. Um, persimmons are something I think that in the Western society, we don't always know what to do with them. And you using them as you did in the sunrise fruit 
um, dish was just really wonderful because I like Thank persimmons you. and I really like seeing them used well. And you did. And like your beet tartare was, was brilliant. And you're like mushroom tart is like, I'm like, I would make that for my family. And <laughs> so like, these are all really nice things. And I don't think it's common because oftentimes, you know, cookbooks that have any kind of health bent are always like smoothies or, you know, quinoa, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, so it's not always stuff that's really, you know, very tasty. And I really loved how beautiful the cookbook was. How much hand did you have in the uh, visual look of it? Because it really has a beautiful look from the fonts and the um, title fonts that were just wonderful to the photography. The food photography was amazing. How much, how much control did you have in that? Thank you so much. That was, as you said, so many kind things. <laughs> Thank you. I, uh, I actually, I had a, a huge amount of control. I had a kind, I had total control, which was incredible. I, so this was published with the French publisher Sola Editions in Paris, and they loved the idea and they kind of let me completely run wild with it. And I, I actually didn't think they were expecting me to do this. Um, this was my first cookbook and originally I think it was planned for a much smaller release and I went absolutely crazy. I was in my little attic apartment in Paris in the winter time, tiny attic, and I turned one of the storage spaces into a little photo studio and I did all the photos myself and I came up with all the recipes, did massive research, and then I was just marathon working. I was, I was like, a, I was untouchable during the, that year when I was working on this. And uh, they, I sent some photos here and there, but they really let me run wild. I think it was also because they didn't, they didn't think it, they didn't, <laughs> I don't think they were intending to invest that much money into it. And then when they saw the book, they actually decided to change the release to a Christmas release. Oh, nice. And it, it turned out to be bigger than, than we thought it would be. So I think that was, that maybe had to do with why they kind of left me on my own. I'm not sure, but it was an incredible experience because I just got to go crazy with creativity. And then I had an amazing team of the graphic designers who did the illustrations. Um, they, but they were inspired by my, my website and aesthetic, but they really, they, they created something from my world that was, I was so pleased with. Uh, and it was just a dream getting to work with French publishers and then in America as well. Um, so do you have any, uh, I mean, did you, did you just, did you always do photography? Did you grow up with it? Cause your food photography is not something everybody can do well. Like I do Instagram photos and I struggle with it, but you mm -hmm. did a really good job. Did you take photography? Did you have a background in it? Um, I, I have always been doing artwork since I was a very little girl. I really started with sculpture, working with my hands, creating these elaborate scenes. I used to, when I was really little, I used to just live in the woods, basically building fairy houses out of sticks and moss and mushrooms. So I always had this kind of working with objects aspect. Uh, I loved photography and I did it sort of on the side for pleasure, which is how I got more used to it. Um, but I, I have background in fashion styling. That's what I was doing when I was working in the fashion world. And I was all the time on photo shoots and working with stylists. And there's a lot of synergy, synergy between the fashion world and photography and sort of translating emotions and stories onto a scene, uh, food photography scene. And 
I think my my style size um, style my <laughs> sorry my um, I think my photography style is also very influenced by painting, which is something else that I do. And when I set everything up, it I don't try to make it look authentic or like I oh this is just a photo casually taken at my perfectly imperfect dinner table. Like that's everybody plays around with what they put out there. I want it to feel like art when I'm making it. So I have this sort of meditative period where I'm playing with the food and putting it out and trying to bring out the beauty of the ingredients. That's really important to me, not just the recipe, but showing these incredible foods and objects that go into it. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The word witch is very politicized today. Um, I myself identify mm -hmm. as a witch and I'm very uh, much in touch with the, the witch community. When you um, decided to publish this book, did you have any trepidation about approaching a publisher like Simon & Schuster with the title or was it just something you were like, I'm gonna do this no matter what? How did you go about it? Uh, well, my first sort of foray into the food blogging world was an emphasis on French cooking, French meets American cooking, which is very much integrated into this book. And then I felt like it wasn't connecting enough with me and my style and who I was. And I actually, I didn't approach Simon Schuster first. I had the French publisher and I pitched a whole load of ideas to them and they loved the witch concept. I was even a little hesitant. I said to them, you know, if the witch is not something that you latch onto, then we can do just sort of plant-based, more naturopathic. And they said, no, we love that. So the French were very eager. They were paying attention to the fact that witch was being politicized. This was about the chime of like, I think mid-Trump presidency yeah. when we were starting to see that rise in the occults that that rebellion this witch is a symbol of feminism of humanism of revolt and holding of sexuality and free thought and thinking so that was very much the focus i wanted on and they so Lara, they picked up on that right away and they told me they're like we want this to have a feminist aspect to it uh, we want to tap into that kind of a niche so that's why i start out the book talking about the history of the witch and the burning of witches and what kind of people, anyone who was interested in science, healing, like it wasn't even the ones dancing naked by the fire for fun. It was anyone who, any woman who encroached upon the sort of male dominated field and also any man who played along into that. Men were not protected <laughs> from this either during that period. It was, it was questioning authority and free thinking that ignited that. And we were, we're seeing that, that happening again today all over this, the symbol of the witch is enduring. And I'm, I remember people around me were 
the reactions to the witch were interesting. Um, family members were saying, are you sure you want to go with that? And they had this very Disney-like representation of the evil witch. And, and some people reacted that way. And that really incentivized me to talk about that directly in the book and to say the representations we have of witches, our conceptions that comes from Disney and patriarchal views and representations of women as the jealous hag, Think of Snow White, jealous of the young girl, obsessed with beauty. And that's not what witchcraft is. If you go back to pre-Western religion and you look at the, uh, the priestesses and the, god, the gods and goddesses, there were female deuses, fertility that was worshipped. There was the three-gendered three god that was in between all sexualities. All these things that are sort of um, taboos according to conservative society today, back then was what was worshiped. And I think going back to that image of the witch as the healer and as the wise person of the village, mostly the healer, I think that's the self-healer, the community healer. I think that's something that's incredibly important to me and to my, <laughs> my brand of witchcraft. Have you had any um, feedback from the, the witch community at all? Uh, I, I had, a, I have amazing feedback <laughs> from people, which I was so grateful for, uh, across from, from people on Instagram reaching out to me and just the most amazing stories about making a lavender potion that I have in the book for someone's husband and instantly he lay down and finally took a nap or somebody telling that one of my hair potions helped them regrow from hair loss and just things that were exactly what I wanted, I intended for my book to do to, uh, to help people take control of their lives. Um, there, there was one person who didn't like that I had veal recipes in the book. And yeah, for you're me, that's, what. <laughs> yeah, and I thought that was really interesting. And that just shows, shows how little, how much people want to help and eat and do things in the right direction. They're trying to be right, but also not fully understand how complicated these systems are. Veal is actually a much more sustainable meat. And I'm advocating towards buying from local small veal uh, farms. Actually, right next door is uh, my internet unstable again. Just one check. Right next door is a uh, organic veal farm where I see the cows farm in general, but they have veal and the cows live the happiest lives and they keep them until six months old. And the way that they kill them is as humane as possible. And it actually has a lower carbon footprint. There's less methane, there's uh, less feed, there's less water that goes into it and the meat is richer and denser. And I think that can be a complicated thing for people to understand. Or if I say, you know, if you're drinking milk, well, if you want to drink milk, then what's going to happen to the male cows? Are we going to keep them all, everyone that's born and keep them alive in the fields, contributing to greenhouse gases? Or is there a way to sort of integrate this into a food cycle that's more sustainable? And that's even something I myself am, am playing with because I'm emphasizing more and more moving towards plant-based diets. But I think there is a way to integrate meats. And for example, I use a rabbit recipe in the book, which must terrify Americans, but the French are really open to rabbit and rabbit's actually one of the lowest carbon meats out there. 
and it just seems like, oh, cute little rabbit. Well, maybe we can get over the cute animals thing as a, as a validation of life and think of it in other terms. So I get why people can struggle with that. I really do. And I sympathize with that. And I, I hope that it can open up a dialogue with people who might be shocked by the few meal recipes that I incorporate into it. But uh, I think that I think that people just in general need to be less judgmental of other people's eating habits and just more supportive of all of us finding a more balanced way that works to all our individual health. There's people who can't live off of a vegan diet and there's people that absolutely need to for other reasons. So I think respect and compassion and trying to be knowledgeable and informed about things is so important. That's very well said. I'm glad you said that. I've, I've grown up around animal husbandry and I think there's a lot of misconceptions in the West about um, things like veal and they don't people don't really understand they, there's a lot of a uh, cultural folklore that gets thrown around mm -hmm. and people have just these bad images and it's not really the case um, you split your time between France and America how has your cooking been influenced by living in France so much uh, it's so much many of the dishes in the cookbook are influenced by classic French dishes that I do a complete spin-off of. The French are very into quiches and stuffed vegetable dishes and um, meat dishes with unusual uh, classic pairings. And I like to inject something unexpected into it. So I, I see my cooking as a really balanced harmony between sort of classic French culinary approach mixed in with this American flair for dietetic sort of uh, uh, healthy unusual flavors and pairings into it and I'm both America and France I spent a lot of time by, by the sea so the seashore the fishes uh, local farms both of those things are constants in my life in, in France and my life here in America and it's just so wonderful because when I'm in each place there's dishes that I love from the other that I transport back and forth with me. So right now, since I've been away from France for so long, I'm homesick and I just want to make French type dishes all the time. Or I learned how to shuck oysters by fifth generation oyster farmers in the west of France. And I took that technique, um, just totally different from the East Coast America oyster shucking technique. And I kind of merged them into my own weird little thing. <laughs> So it's a way to keep things that you love close with you. And that's what's so special about food. It, it, you can bring a home anywhere with you. I want to ask you, um, throughout your life, who have been your inspirations in, in the cooking world? What cookbooks uh, are, are inspiring to you and who do you read? Oh my God, <laughs> there's so many people. I'm, I'm, I'm a big geek for the, the French chefs. <laughs> um, uh, like Jean Lambert and um, all the different chefs from the, the big hotels in Paris. And it's amazing how Instagram and the internet has opened up their worlds uh, uh, to, to everybody that way. And you get to spy on their different techniques. Um, at the same time, I'm, I'm a big uh, Gordon Ramsay <laughs> a, a fan because I love the way that he breaks down and explains food. And he's one of the people who, whenever he talks about food, I always learn something new. I also just, I love um, uh, 
you know, the Barefoot Contessa, <laughs> just for cozy, coziness at home. I love Mimi Thorson as well with her, like her dream representation world of France and the countryside. And I love the way she integrates her Hong Kongese background into it as well. And there's just so many young up and coming chefs and cookbook authors everywhere who inspire me. We're getting, we're exposed to so many different cultures and countries and places and approaches. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. And I was also inspired a lot by my grandmother. Um, my cooking has um, very cozy European quality. My grandmother is Dutch and Dutch and French cooking have a lot of overlap, uh, inspiring back and forth. And so that hearty, cozy, home-cooked meal quality is something important. I like to combine kind of the visual elegance of more gastronomic cooking with something from home and grandmother and comforting. Comfort is so important in all my food. Anything else right now? Yes, I am. I'm working on um, my second cookbook, actually. Hey. Uh, it's very much very preliminary. <laughs> uh, no one else is involved yet. There's no publishers involved uh, or anything. It's very much, this is actually something I've been working on almost at the same time that I was working on my first cookbook. I was taking notes for it. it uh, like I said, my first cookbook, it, I it was, I was a novice. It was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. It was a whole new world for me. And I'm so proud of myself on how I navigated it and did that and how much I learned. I'm, I'm honestly, I don't even know who I was as I'm working on this cookbook. I'm thinking, who were you? How did you get that done? It's this one feels so much harder because I don't, I don't know why. I think I'm just so much more is going into even more is going into these recipes. So I'm working on that and I'm very, very, very far from the finish line. And I'm also doing healing workshops and uh, virtual healing workshops, which started out of the pandemic and has turned into something that I love so much and has also just fed into everything else I'm doing. And I'm going to also be starting uh, a clinical herbalism school in Paris next year as well. So there's a lot going on. Wow, you're very busy. My health issues. <laughs> yeah, I am. And I'm trying not to put too much pressure on myself in terms of when I can't work uh, because of my health. Like in the end, letting myself rest, not pushing myself will allow me to do more because I, I think I'm still recovering from writing this last cookbook. <laughs> So there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, I've heard a lot of people say it's like having a child. It is. Oh my God. I, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not belittling any um, bringing an actual human into the world experience, but there were just blood, sweat and tears that went into this book. I, I actually wrote this cookbook, the last one with a double kidney infection. And oh I had my first most dramatic knife accident halfway through and sliced my finger open with a, a steak knife when I was doing something very irresponsible with it, like opening up a nut. So I deserved this. So I had a pretty gnarly handicap during this as well. So I, I'm, I don't know how I did that. I think I was possessed. <laughs> I really think I was possessed. Like to get that back. <laughs> Um, this is the last question and hopefully it's a fun one. If you could host a dinner party for up to 10 people, 
celebrities or not, historical figures or not, who would you invite and what would you serve or order in? I love that question. I love the way that makes me dream. Oh, uh, right now I'm in such a ecological sustainability focused and also just even, even deeper into the science worlds. And I'm also an absolute geek for uh, outer space and astrophysics. I love that. So I would pick a very science earth-based group of people. I would love to have Jane Goodall there, Carl Sagan, Stephen Hawking, um, David Attenborough. I would love, not just because his voice is amazing. <laughs> and I'd say Bill Gates also, and Dr. Fauci, just because right now <laughs> I love, love Dr. Fauci and I would love to make dinner for him <laughs> to thank him for being a guiding figure this year. And I think that would be just an amazing group of, of thinkers and, you know, Rachel Carson too, I'll throw her in there. There's more women in there too. I like that. And a group just to talk about science and the earth and food and progress and how to turn our world into a much more self-sustaining organism. And I think Oh, I think I lost you. Climates of the world, uh, showing things that come from the earth and with the sustain, sorry, things that come from the ocean with a sustainable aspect to it, like integrating algae and seaweed, which I think will save the world into dishes in a way that's accessible. Um, mushrooms that come from the forest and different types of mushrooms, because one of the most sustainable foods out there. Um, especially farmed oysters and shellfish that are also doing work to clean the bays. Uh, all kinds of plants and vegetables cooked and prepared as if they were meats. And one of my favorite, favorite things to do for dinner parties is bring the outside indoors. So one, one year for a Bacchus dinner party, I had put a sort of centerpiece of wild raspberries and blackberries and fruits that people could pick directly off and eat. And I love that. And I want to do something like that even more innate and clever. Like, oh, maybe dig, oh, maybe dig mushrooms, edible mushrooms, because I love to forage mushrooms. Dig them out of the ground, still encased in their little mycelium shell and put that at the dinner table and give people little knives and they can harvest their own mushrooms or something fun like that. Oh God, there's so many possibilities. I love all these. <laughs> Thank these you are for great. that question. I love that. This in and itself would make a nice book, <laughs> like how to do dice dinner parties and stuff. Well, thank you very oh, much. I love that. Oh, I want to, I hope, I hope. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. I so enjoyed talking with you. I really, I'm very honored to have you on my podcast. Thank you very much. And I've really enjoyed getting... <laughs> That was our encore presentation with LaSalna Wallens, The Natural Witch's Cookbook. It's a wonderful cookbook, and if you want to get uh, back to eating healthy or eating more fruits and vegetables in your diet, it's a wonderful cookbook that I highly recommend. Um, we're going to be having on Friday J.D. Walker, who has the new book by Llewellyn, The Witch's Guide to Wide Crafting. She's going to be here to cap um, off our Halloween week, and I look forward to having you hear that conversation. She was a wonderful guest and a font of information. I could talk to her all week. She's just a really great guest. And that'll cap off Halloween week. On Friday, we're going to be having Katie Quinn, author, blogger of Cheese, Women, and Bread. 
She'll be um, here on Monday. And then Cal Peternell, Burnt Toast and Other Disasters, will be here next Friday. So I look forward to having you here, all those guests. And I hope you enjoyed this encore presentation with my one of my favorite guests, Lasana Wallance, who wrote The Natural Witch's Cookbook. Until Friday, happy cooking. <laughs>